What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Kader. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now let's build something. Today, our guest is Nick Falker. Nick is the managing partner at Cambridge Realty Partners based in, surprise, New Haven, Connecticut, not Cambridge, Massachusetts. The firm has been investing and developing in real estate opportunistically since 1978. Over that time, they have focused on office assets in the Northeast U.S., Texas, and Mexico, and most recently in multifamily in Connecticut. Nick previously worked at Cigna Realty Investors in Connecticut and the Bristol Group in California. We will be talking about The Elm, his new construction multifamily building in downtown New Haven. It is catering to young professionals and Yale affiliates. More broadly, we will talk about the rise of the second city during COVID and what other cities might learn from it. New York's loss is perhaps New Haven's gain. So thank you so much for being here with us, Nick. Thanks, Atif. Great to be here and uh, appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. So Nick, you started out your career at Eastill Secure, the investment sales brokerage. Why did you start there and what did you learn from that experience? Well, I started there because it was the best opportunity I had at the time out of college. I, I didn't really know anything yet and was trying to crack into the industry. Obviously, real estate is a is a tough industry to crack into. And, mm-hmm. and once you're in, you typically stay in. East Still Secured, if, if people don't know about the company, it's a phenomenal real estate brokerage company. They really set the bar for um, $100 million and up real estate transactions in the early 90s. So as real estate became a more institutional asset class, East Still Secured really raised the bar in terms of institutional quality asset brokerage. So it was an excellent opportunity for me. This was in 2006 when I, when I first started there. And particularly what they did really, really well was real estate analytics. So I, mm-hmm. I joined as a first-year analyst. I joined with several other new hires at the same time. And they had a formal real estate analytics training program for their first-year analysts that we went through. And the blocking and tackling and hard skills that we learned there were excellent and served me very, very well. I still use Excel without a mouse. And (laughs) the skills I got from those few years were I I use daily. So it was an excellent place to start. Do you know, honestly, I would say that 
since real estate development is a second career after being an architect, I absolutely need to use a mouse in Excel. Uh, no matter, even I am very incredibly proficient, I still have to use the mouse. So sure. that is definitely a measure of success, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So after that, you spent almost four years in San Francisco. What prompted the move out there and how would you compare the real estate industry in the Bay Area versus uh, that in Metro New York City? Yeah. Well, the move out there was was after college for me. I went to college on the East Coast. I'm from mm-hmm. the East Coast. And I had some friends from college that were heading out there for various jobs as well. So we all got an apartment together. It sounded like a great place to live. This is San Francisco, 2006. And it was all of that. California is wonderful. San Francisco is amazing. And uh, it was a great place to go after college. In terms of a real estate investment market, San Francisco has many similarities to New York City, mm. many major differences as well, though. I'd say on the similar side, severely supply constrained, being both being physical peninsulas and water surrounding them, both being very densely populated and both being tier one cities in terms of liquidity and all global uh, investment attributes. Major differences, obviously, San Francisco, less so now, it's more diversified now, but it's still heavily um, centered around the technology industry Mm -hmm. and all of the offshoots of that, which has served it well through the great global financial crisis and through COVID. But um, obviously, tech has been a, a huge part of the last 20 years. But it is a less diverse economy than New York City. New York City is a much, much bigger economy and much more diversified global economy than San Francisco. I think also in terms of population, so New York City is at 8.8 million. I think San Francisco is not 8.8 million. (laughs) (laughs) I believe at least 10 years ago, it was less than a million in in the city proper. But when you bring in the greater San Francisco area, including the East Bay, Oakland, um, you get to several million people quickly. Mm -hmm. But the city proper is, is actually sparsely populated relative to New York City. They don't have high-rise buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't have high-rise residential really at all. So yeah, far fewer people. So you've had experience in investment sales brokerage in real estate development, and then you returned to Connecticut and worked with your father, Michael Falker, who started Cambridge Realty Partners. What aspects of the firm did you retain when you took over and what did you change? So the first thing that, that I changed was a, a full pivot into multifamily, which during my dad's era through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, they had never done multifamily. My dad and, say they, my dad and his partners that built the firm. So we, when I came in to Cambridge in 2015, we pivoted exclusively into multifamily. So that was a pretty strong pivot. Also, my dad had built up and his partners had built up an industrial portfolio in Mexico in the mm-hmm. early two, in the nineties and early two thousands. And they sold the, the majority of that portfolio in 2006, retained one asset. And that final asset was sold in 2013. Mm-hmm. So from 2013 to 2015, Cambridge had really been dark. You know, my dad had unofficially retired at that point along with his partners. So we really restarted the company. I restarted the company in 2015. So in many ways, this version of Cambridge, my version is a, is a startup. It's kind of 2.0. We we certainly have all the benefit of of the longer track record and the credibility and and the brand, but in many other ways, it, it looks and feels like a, like a startup, like a newer company. So as you were starting up the, the second iteration of 
of Cambridge Realty Partners. What were some of the the challenges and some of the, the the learnings that you had as you were setting down that course? Well, biggest challenges to starting a real estate company, the biggest challenge, in my opinion, is the capital. It's a mm-hmm. capital intensive business. Um, you are buying hard assets and, and there's all, all of the good that comes with that. People always talk about the tangible nature mm-hmm. of it relative to other asset classes and the challenges of that, which is it's it's by definition capital intensive mm-hmm. because you're buying a real asset. So, or you're building a real asset either way. So, you know, there, there's an inherent conflict there when you're going for a startup, but you need heavy capital that obviously doesn't exist with internet startups. So you kind of, you need to have either an angel investor, a family member, someone that's willing to back you, or you need to be old enough and have been in the game long mm-hmm. enough to show a track record and have in your back pocket a, a stable of more institutional investors that are ready to back you for professional reasons. Mm-hmm. So that's an inherent friction to starting up a real estate company that's always been there. And it hasn't really changed with the all of the evolution that's gone on in, in the, the business world of the last 20 years. That hasn't really changed. And that was certainly my biggest challenge. And in many ways, it remains one of our biggest challenges. We've grown and our access to capital has grown. Mm-hmm. But as we grow with each iteration, the next round of deals that we do grow in, in step with that. So we're always pressing the next bigger loan, the next bigger equity check. And I suppose that that challenge will never stop. And mm-hmm. that's exciting. But the zero to one stage is certainly the, the most challenging because once you have the track record proven, it's much easier to say, well, we're just stepping up in terms of size and scale, but this is something that we've done for a long time. That's a much easier conversation for a capital source than we're starting out on our own. And this is why we think it's going to work. So uh, this month we had Sam Dickinson, who's the founder of uh, Keeler Markwood Group earlier on this year. So he had worked in the hedge fund industry as a trader uh, for 20 years. And for him, the the presentation or the the talking points that he had were focused on his skill set and risk management in Uh, the hedge fund industry and how that would parlay well to a first development project. That's the way that he presented himself for raising capital for his first deal. What were the things that you mentioned when you were raising capital for your first deal? So I really, all I had to point at, which I, I, I suppose any startup real estate person has to point at, is their previous experience, which had been extremely relevant. It had been multifamily development. It had been industrial and office building value add projects with Bristol Group. You know, when I was at Cigna, we deployed several hundred million dollars of equity into class A institutional multifamily development around the country Mm -hmm. in tier one and tier two cities. So, and and I'd been in the business from 2006 until 2015 at that point. So it was almost a 10 year stretch of very, very relevant experience. But the question that most people had was, but you haven't done it yourself. And it's, it was an extremely valid question. And it proved to be a, a on-point question as well. Because when I did start doing it myself, there were things I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the intuitive things that when you, I imagine that you only gain by doing it yourself, such as intuition for how much it costs to renovate a 600 square foot apartment versus a 1300 square foot apartment. And if you're going to class A standards, or you're taking a class Mm -hmm. C building and bringing it to class B minus. Um, Those, the dollars involved in those renovation differences, that becomes intuitive quickly, uh, especially if you have the the financial background in the the business, but you don't develop the close intuition until you do it yourself. 
Mm-hmm. And that can lead to mistakes. And it led to mistakes on my end as well. You know, there were several projects we did in the beginning that were ultimately financially successful, but we made underwriting errors because we didn't have an extremely close eye for renovation costs. It was more broad brush estimation mm-hmm. that we were building our pro forma with, which was got us 90% of the way there. So, um, you know, that's not to say they were fatal flaws, far from it, but what could have been a 20% IRR maybe was an 18 because mm-hmm. of those mistakes. So, and those are mistakes that we fixed and, and, and that's how we've gotten better. Out of curiosity for the construction underwriting, were there certain things that you uh, did have to turn the screws and tighten up a bit? Was it, I'm guessing it likely was the rough carpentry numbers. Those can swing a lot because of material prices or some of the specialty trades or yeah. specialty equipments. Was it both of those or were there specific instances for you? Absolutely. In, in COVID or prior? Uh, for those first projects. For the first projects. Yeah. I would say labor and materials. Absolutely. Um, all, all of the above. The cost of labor varied wildly depending on the quality of the contractor, you know, and the amount of insurance that they had, et cetera. You know, it's very easy to renovate five units with kind of guys in a truck. <laughs> or you can renovate those five units with the same G- general contractor with all of the insurance qualifications and everything else that you would use for a ground up $40 million project. And, and that would cost something much different. Mm-hmm. And, and he or she would likely have a bigger truck, right? <laughs> That's right. And a much bigger truck, multiple trucks. Yes. You know, and the, there are pluses and minuses for all of these decisions and there's risks and benefits. But yeah, we, we certainly could have done things better, of course, because we were a startup. We didn't know everything and we don't know everything now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's an endless process of uh, learning and improving. One thing in particular, when I was uh, taking the experience from Nextel development and then starting my own development business to do value add opportunistic small scale multifamily in Jersey was that the norm for construction contingency is 10%. That's all right if you're doing a $100 million deal. But if you're doing a $5 million deal, especially if it's value add, I learned to change the number from 10 to 25% to account for all of those things that you're just talking about. Yes, absolutely. Right. When the budget's extremely small, 10% is not going to give you a lot of wiggle room to make a mistake. Not at all. But, but of course, if, if the budget's quite big, you know, now you're talking, now you do have a few bucks to work with. And, and we employ that, that exact same strategy. We have a $40 million development in Bloomfield, Connecticut that's mm-hmm. starting right now. And we have a 5% owner's contingency on it. Whereas mm-hmm. with the Elm, our, our downtown New Haven building that we just finished, I think we had a 10% owner's contingency in it. And that was a uh, 13 million. So a $13 million mm-hmm. build in downtown New Haven versus a $40 million build significantly different different underwriting there. So let's pivot then to the Elm. The Elm is located in downtown New Haven. And some of our listeners may not have heard of the city and those that have may automatically associate it with Yale. What is special about the city for you and what drew you to this particular site? New Haven's a wonderful city. The location is great. It's on it's on the water. It's on the on the sound, and, and it's basically halfway between New York and Boston. It's on the train lines to New York, but it's got all of the benefits and, and niceness of Connecticut. It's not so dense that it's hard to get around. Traffic's mm-hmm. not really a problem. It's also just got a ton of character. It's got grit. It's got Yale University, so it's got the college town fun aspects to it. It's got a, a local, longstanding uh, kind of grittiness with 
great food, great restaurants, and a not too fussy, fancy vibe to it. So for mm-hmm. all those reasons, uh, my family and I have loved living here for 10 plus years. The site itself was brought to our attention on an off-market basis in 2019. So an in, a local investor that I, that I know and knew at the time had a relationship with the seller who mm-hmm. had owned the property for about 30 or 35 years. So the, the site itself, the development site for the album was a parking lot when we purchased it. And right next to the parking lot was a hundred unit building that we also purchased with it from the same seller. The parking lot that's now the Elm was a, was a parking lot for the hundred unit building that we purchased. There's been a, a movement in New Haven along with most American cities for the past 10 years to, if not a formally change their zoning laws, then to unofficially require less parking mm-hmm. in downtown urban areas obviously to allow for more density, more building in an effort to bring down housing costs. So anyways, we purchased that. The the local investor that I knew brought it to our attention that he had a relationship with the seller and they may be interested in doing an Mm off-market transaction. And he needed help financing the project and getting it done. So he called me and, and we got it done. And as soon as we closed on that acquisition, which was a $15 million acquisition of the 100 units plus the parking lot, we immediately started talking to the city of New Haven about entitling the parking lot for development. So Mm -hmm. that conversation with the city started right as we closed, which was February of 2019. And then with a lot of back and forth, formal and informal with the city, about a year later, we received building permits and broke ground for the Elm, which was uh, March of 2020, when we broke ground, right as COVID was unfolding. Mm-hmm. Perfect timing. <laughs> so I think uh, probably one of the the best piece of advice that I got as I was starting a development company uh, was, sure, sure, yeah, 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 you you have all the experience and all the other things. Just buckle up. <laughs> yeah. Just buckle up. So, yeah, yes. Building in the middle yeah. of a pandemic. Development is hard. Up. And so. it is hard. And there's no matter what you're building, you're going to have unforeseen issues. Back to the contingency mm-hmm. conversation. The best advice I got when I was budgeting for the development of the Elm was put in more contingency than, than you think you need. And 100%. certainly don't use any rule of thumb from a $50 million or $100 million development that you may have learned at a previous employer and apply it to mm-hmm. a much smaller project. Exactly as you said, Atif. So. But there were many unforeseen issues, most notably was global pandemic, mm-hmm. I would say. So let's take a, like a step back a little bit. So more about New Haven. So there has been a boom of rental building construction in New Haven over the past seven to 10 years. And we've had the opportunity to tour buildings like the Novella and the Corsair. Who else is developing in the area? And what did you take away from their projects as you started planning for the Elm? Yeah, good question. So it's still mostly local developers. Until maybe the last two years, it was really local developers, meaning Mm -hmm. Connecticut. You know, there are Fairfield County developers and Hartford developers, but mostly Connecticut-based folks. I would say in the last two to three years, that started to broaden out quite a bit. Some certainly institutional capital from New York and Boston has come into town. And even on the GP sides, Heinz just purchased a development site in Worcester Square in New Haven. Oh, wow. um, and they are developing a, a two or 300 unit project there. So that is very new for New Haven. There's, mm-hmm. I think, the first signs of the city broadening were 
kind of institutional cap or, or capital sources from further outside of, of Connecticut coming into town. And now they're coming into town on a GP basis where they're mm -hmm. actually buying sites, controlling sites, developing sites. So you're certainly seeing that. I don't know whether that says something about New Haven or whether it says something about where we are in the capital markets. I'm not sure. Probably mm -hmm. a little of both. Mm -hmm. But that's all happening right now. Yeah. So tell us about the development strategy in more detail. Mm -hmm. And who else is working on this project with you? So we worked with a local design and build firm, Urbane New Haven. They were the architects on record and also the general contractor. They have both of those skill sets in-house. They're a local company. I'm friends with the owner of the company and, and the partners there. And I had known them well before we started the project. So we did interview other architects and general contractors for the job, but Going into the project, I spoke with the owner of Urbane New Haven. He said he was very excited about the, mm -hmm. the concept, the location. And basically, it was, uh, it, I'm going to do the project with, with this group unless we can't make it work for some reason. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the mindset going in. That was a relationship-based. I mean, that was a good, a good story of a small town project coming together. It was, it was two local companies that knew each other that, that had every intent to do the project together. And they were excellent. They designed a very unique, cool building. And then they executed the build through what I would imagine was probably the most challenging 18 months to build a building that you could imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, all the supply chain issues, all the pricing pressures, all the labor issues labor. as the pandemic rolled out, all of the political uncertainty. And you know, if, if you recall, in the beginning of 2020, when COVID was um, unfolding, mm -hmm. New York City actually shut down construction for a period of time. I think mm -hmm. Boston did as well. So the state of New Jersey did as well. And my project shut down for two months. Oof, yeah, tough. So we were looking, we had, uh, we're right on the cusp of closing the construction loan in March of 2020 for mm -hmm. the Elm. And uh, we were staring down this pandemic environment and looking at what was happening in New York first and, mm -hmm. and then later Boston, as you just said, New Jersey, where the governors were shutting down construction. Obviously, if we closed the loan and, and had drawn on the loan, we'd be paying mm -hmm. interest on that. And and similarly, if, if the GC was buying out all of their goods and then sitting on them and, and labor and sitting on them without able to begin building, the cost implications of that are huge. So mm -hmm. that was a very difficult decision to make. Governor Lamont, the governor of Connecticut, issued a formal statement that, that's available on YouTube um, sometime in the m middle of March, where he actually cited New York and Boston having shut down their construction industries. And then he specifically said, we are circling construction as one of the few core industries that we will do everything within our power mm -hmm. to, re to remain open as it's a, a bright spot for the local Connecticut economy. And it has the ability to maintain operations mostly outdoors. And mm -hmm. for a variety of other reasons, given the fact that everything else was shutting down, he specifically cited construction as something he was going to try to keep open. So that was really the, the trigger point for me. Um, once he made that statement, mm -hmm. I spoke to our lenders. I said, look, guys, we, we need to close on this and move forward now or never. And mm -hmm. they were an excellent partner. They closed and we started building and we were never shut down. So similar discussion we had earlier this season with Marianne Gilmartin, uh, founder and the head of MAG Partners, the former CEO of uh, Forsey Ratner. And she actually closed on the financing for her major multifamily project in West Chelsea 
in Manhattan around the same time that you did for your project in New Haven. Yeah. <laughs> and she had similar conversations with her investors. And she said, New York is always going to be New York. Let's go. Let's do this. Yeah. So and I'm guessing there's probably similar aspects because in the case of New Haven, it's not just any other second city. Literally, Yale is right there. Yes. That uh, it would have been a different different conversation with our capital sources had that not been the case. We're, we're basically right on the edge of Yale's campus. And, mm-hmm. and had that not been the case, if this was a more suburban multifamily mm-hmm. project, I imagine the friction we would have encountered with the capital sources would have been would have been more significant, but that was huge for this. And then, of course, Yale did shut down as soon as we started construction. So <laughs> the construction industry did not. But within weeks of us starting construction, Yale sit, shut down, sent all their students home, and then it was very uh, unclear whether they'd be coming back for the fall. And, and as you recall, in the fall of 2020, they came mm-hmm. back in a very hybrid way. So there was mm-hmm. far fewer students on campus than. Than there are now but uh anyways um. do you know what i would imagine then is it's probably then a different story of being next to a major research university that is in a city versus a major university research university for example university of connecticut which does not have the benefit of a multi-industry city like new haven yeah because then you can balance those ups and downs that you might have within one particular area yeah i think that's right yeah you have a, a more diversified tenant base, potential tenant base. Mm-hmm. If you're in a city, you know, you can, can there's so many options at, at your disposal to, if you have a, um, a well-located multi quality, multifamily building in a city, mm-hmm. there's so many options available for you to generate income in a, in a challenging environment. If there's a recession or a pandemic, you can switch to Airbnb. You can do all sorts of things to generate income. And the reason for that is people need places to live. Always. So if you're flexible with the ways in which you lease your building, you can stay leased. If you're in a more suburban area, if you've built purpose uh, student housing at UConn, to use your example, mm-hmm. in Storrs, Connecticut, which is very woodsy, very suburban, and UConn shuts down due to a pandemic, you're, you've got an empty building. You don't have any other options. Mm-hmm. So speaking of building, so walk us through the building that's, that's your new construction project. So our listeners could imagine what they would experience when they walk through it when it's completed. So you you enter the building. It's got a uh, industrial vibe to it. There is a concrete podium that the parking is underneath, and the building mm-hmm. really sits on top of that. And as you enter the lobby, you can see kind of the exterior wall of the concrete podium. On that podium, uh, we had a local artist do a uh, kind of a mural wall painting of um, kind of a New Haven landscape. It's got kind of a, a mix of like bright, cool colors with a, a, like an urban industrial vibe to it. So um, that's that's the the vibe of the building. Um, there's got a there's a gym um, immediately to your right and to your left of the lobby. There are some mm-hmm. conference rooms, some shared workspace areas with some TVs where people can break off into study groups and or, or, or work from home in a more comfortable place outside of your apartment. And there's there's an elevator bank, six story building. Each floor has, uh, I think, six to eight units on it. It's a mix of studios to four-bedroom units. And the roof deck is, uh, there is a roof deck, which is you can take the elevator all the way up or you can take the stairs. Mm-hmm. And we've got some cocktail tables, some lounge chairs, cornhole. You know, it's just, a, it's a, yeah, <laughs> right. Check all the boxes for your roof deck. Yeah. And it's got a cool view of downtown and, and when the weather. And the Yale campus too. 
absolutely it's there. It looks right at downtown and the Yale campus. Yeah. So uh, people, uh, when we opened the building in the fall, people were using it quite a bit. As you were going through the design process with Urbane New Haven, what were some of the choices that you made in terms of finishes? Given this is a multifamily building, there's a student population, so you want it to look good, but also stand up. Uh, what were some of those decisions you made? So, yeah, we, so we developed it to luxury standards, but we made unique strategic decisions, I would say, that a lot of our competitors didn't make. You'll see a lot of kind of cookie cutter, new multifamily tendencies when you tour a lot of these these buildings. And um, we found a lot of those amenities were not being utilized by many of the tenants mm-hmm. in the comp- competing buildings. Uh, a theater room, for example, was a good, a good example of that I, we found that there was very little usage of mm-hmm. those types of concepts. And that was prior to the pandemic. And with COVID, people are using those types of things significantly less. So we emphasized uh, a good fitness center. We emphasized um, bright, modern, warm colors. We emphasized modern and efficiency usage and flow of space. But we probably downplayed some of the, the tricks, you know, things like a theater room. We opted for multiple conference rooms with TVs that you can project on and, and whiteboards that you can brainstorm on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some small ones for groups of two or four, and we have some bigger ones for groups of six or eight. And I think as the work from home aspect of life has really grown with the pandemic, those spaces are just very, very valued. So that that worked out to our benefit for sure. I think that's an excellent point that you make is having toured a number of the large multifamily properties in New Haven, it, I always notice the fact how empty all of their amenities are, especially with the student population, which doesn't necessarily have a nine to five schedule. There should be people in the gym all the time, people in the country all the time. And when I asked a broker about why that is and what the situation is, she said, people like the idea of having amenities, not necessarily using those amenities. And it seems like such a foolish game to play. Just make your apartments nicer then, right? I think that's spot on, but you you can't pour all that money into your into your apartments and not spend on the amenities. So you have to figure out where you want to allocate the money. But I think that's spot on. I think the, the usage of the amenities, generally speaking, is much lower than um, the costs associated with constructing them would, mm-hmm. would suggest. But on the flip side, you kind of have to choose where you want to build out your amenities if you want to compete. So you do need to check certain boxes. And we're building more suburban, two new project multifamily developments now that are more suburban than the Elm. One's outside of Hartford in a, in a suburb of Hartford, one's in New Jersey. And it's exactly that. We have to choose which amenities we want to spend big on for the tour through the project, knowing that we need to capture eyes and attention and, and check certain boxes through the tour. But the utilization of it's it's lower than it should be. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the utilization of the people utilizing those spaces, talk to us more about who you thought your renters were going to be as you were underwriting this deal, how that changed over the course of the project and who actually is renting at the property. Yeah, we expected the um, tenancy to be 80 to 90% Yale. And that Mm -hmm. would be mostly graduate students. That was our expectation. Maybe 90% graduate students, 10% undergrad of the 80 to 90% that we thought would be Yale. And if the 80 to 90% had been Yale, the the other 10 to 20% we expected to be the young professional cohort. Mm -hmm. That ratio of Yale to young professional is more uh, more in line with 50-50 now. Really? And that's a result of COVID. 
there are a lot of folks, relatively a lot of folks moving from New York into New Haven right now. And I say relatively because there's a lot of folks moving from New York everywhere, Florida, mm-hmm. Connecticut, New Jersey. So Colorado, Georgia. Right. Yes. So New Haven's getting a, a, a share of that, which is great for New Haven. And we've got an excellent location and we've got some big units that are more accommodating for young professionals or mm-hmm. maybe even young families that have the ability to rent a relatively more expensive apartment in New Haven. So um, we're capturing a, a, a segment of that. Excellent. And uh, out of curiosity, do you find folks signing multi-year leases? Because if they're for a PhD program, that could be five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve years. <laughs> yes, the the requests are there. No, okay. no question about it. People are definitely asking for two or three year leases. We're actually not accommodating because the lease has been so well received and so strong. We're we're signing one year leases, and we said we'd love to keep you, and at the mm-hmm. end of your year renew. But the requests are certainly there for two or three year leases. That's a great uh, word of confidence in the product that you've created. I'm going to pause here to let our listeners know that we will be having Chalk Lai, the COO of New York-based real estate investment firm, Clear Mountain Capital, on the podcast next month. Uh, You can check out past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss any of the future episodes by heading to AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. So uh, Redest is a new technology company that is innovating around an age-old problem, financing real estate deals. The machine learning-driven platform is a end-to-end solution for real estate professionals looking to unlock the $100 billion of tax credits and other real estate incentives that are given out every year in the U.S. Learn more at redist.us. Finally, for any person going from the home office to the office to the construction site, finding clothes that look good and stand up to the crazy days is a big deal. That's why I'm a huge fan of Bonobos. I'm in fact wearing other pants right now and Nick may or may not be. And you can check them out for yourself at bonobos.com. So March, 2020, COVID. And that spring into summer, the New York Times estimated that 5% of New York City's residents left and never came back. To put that into context, that is the entire population of Minneapolis or Cleveland or Tampa. So I would see a lot of people. If all you did was look at the Instagram feeds of celebrities, it would seem that they all uh, went to East Hampton. And in reality, many of those actually came to Connecticut to buy homes or to uh, rent properties. Uh, Could you give us a a window, an on-the-ground look at what the residential market was like in New Haven before COVID, during COVID, and then after COVID? Maybe some more anecdotes of, of some of your renters. Yeah, absolutely. And for the record, I am also wearing Bonobo's pants. There Just you FYI. go. Yeah. <laughs> so absolutely. No, Connecticut has certainly been a, a beneficiary of, of population growth from people leaving New York during COVID. And I do think a portion of that is, is permanent. Mm-hmm. How much of that is permanent, I, I don't know, but a, a portion is, I, I, I believe. And the, the residential market in Connecticut, it's, it's fragmented. You really have the Fairfield County residential market, the New Haven residential market, and kind of the Hartford, greater Hartford residential market. All of those markets have risen um, in terms of property values and time on the market. Every, and it, basically, by any other metric, they've all risen across the board. Fairfield County, unquestionably, the most. Mm-hmm. So I think 
following the financial crisis until COVID, Fairfield County uh, single family market was was soft, and employers were basically there was a kind of a net loss of of employers from Southern Connecticut in, into New York and, and other urban areas, and that obviously has been reversed a bit, mm-hmm. and um, the residential market has come back strongly in Connecticut, in New Haven. I don't really know the percentages, but single family homes, I would assume. And it's, it's also a very neighborhoody city, but mm-hmm. uh, so I, I bet it varies quite a bit from neighborhood to neighborhood. But in, in the neighborhood I live in, for example, in East Rock, I would imagine single family home values on average are up 20 to 30 percent. I think those that's pretty um, representative of the country, though. So I think over the past 18 months or so, so 24 months, maybe. So, yeah, I, I think. New Haven has done well. Connecticut's done well. It's the quality of life here has, has always been an attribute and the natural beauty of it has always been an attribute mm-hmm. relative to Jersey or New York. No offense, mm-hmm. New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> and th- those are things that just kind of came back to the forefront for people making decisions, leaving, leaving New York. So the reasons why someone comes to a New Haven and why they choose to stay, let's talk about that in more detail because I think the New Haven story is actually one that is repeated across the metro New York City area and then across other MSAs in the U.S. So one of the important things that we've talked about is this sense of place and these unique aspects that are are only New Havens in terms of everything from Yale to the pizza. So tell us more about the popular neighborhoods that are in New Haven and what you think makes them great places to live, perhaps beginning with East Rock. Yeah, so... East Rock is a, a great place to live. It's it's less than a mile north of um, downtown New Haven. And mm-hmm. Yale Business School is basically in East Rock, a little separated from the core undergrad campus. Worcester Square, as you mentioned before, is a perfect analogy. It is kind of the Brooklyn vibe uh, neighborhood of New Haven. And that's where the Heinz development site is that I mentioned earlier. It's mm-hmm. a 200 or 300 unit project that's, that's under construction now that Heinz is building. And uh, then you have downtown, which has become more viable of a place to live as more residential development has gone up there in the last few years. But still, in my opinion, is a less desirable place to live than East Rock or Worcester Square, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, East Rock and Worcester Square are still very walkable to downtown and you can have more space. And it has really nice neighborhood amenities, coffee shops, bars, Mm -hmm. restaurants. And you don't have to be in an elevator building with mm-hmm. parking challenges, for example, that you ha- would have downtown. So there are obvious reasons to live in downtown New York or, or downtown Boston. But I don't think that really applies to New Haven because the neighborhoods are so accessible, even mm-hmm. by foot, uh, certainly on, on a bike. So, yeah, I mean, so it's, it, it's a great place to live. Yeah. yeah. Talk about the neighborhoods that are north of downtown. I believe they're around Prospect Street and Science Hill. Mm-hmm. Are those areas that are desirable for people moving from New York City, for example? Yeah. So, um, well, Science Hill really borders kind of the Yale sphere and the East mm-hmm. Rock sphere and, you know, a slightly, I hate to say, rougher neighborhood mm-hmm. on the other side of it. So it kind of blends those those two areas. There's been obviously a lot of investment from Yale into, into Science Park. And, and there's several new residential projects that are slated for development in that neighborhood, a mix of affordable housing and market rate housing that has affordable requirements that were instated in order to get the zoning variances that were needed to Mm -hmm. develop that density. So that's a 
interesting place to live. It's pretty gritty there. You know, it's got that commercial and office feel mm-hmm. to it from Science Park. And it's next to some pretty gritty neighborhoods. Um, so it's definitely got a, um, you know, a, a, a mixed bag feel to it. But And the, the Yale Hockey Stadium, the, the whale, the Yale whale is right mm-hmm. there too. So that's a cool attribute of it as well. I believe the Yale Hockey Stadium was designed by Aero Saarinen, yes, as a really iconic architect of the early 1900s. So let's talk about food. So what are your favorite restaurants? What's the foodie scene like in New Haven? Yeah, New Haven's food is awesome. So New Haven has a a longstanding Italian heritage to it going back, Mm -hmm. you know, to the 1800s, hence the the history of pizza in the Mm -hmm. city. But there are so many other great Italian restaurants from markets and uh, little kind of hole in the wall favorites to, you know, more white tablecloth restaurants in my neighborhood in East Rock, Nika's and PM are local Italian markets where you can get prepared foods, uh, prepared salads. They've got seafood, fresh vegetables. And then the sandwich options are incredible. The Italian sandwiches, the paninis, um, the, the pastas are pretty amazing. So that's pretty awesome comfort food on foot to get. And then coffee shops, the Italian coffee shops are fantastic on foot in East Rock. And then the pizza is is what it is. It's the best. It's the best in the world. I would say, have you spent time in Philadelphia? A little bit. Yeah. I feel like New Haven has a vibe of South Philly, Bella Vista, that Italian market area to it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Kind of the grittiness, um, old East Coast, Italian American cities. Absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, transportation's a really important thing, especially for people relocating to New Haven. So what does New Haven have going for it in terms of getting there and getting around? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say the biggest thing is the Metro North stops in New Haven. The end of mm-hmm. the Metro North line out of Grand Central stops in New Haven. So it's the last stop, which directly connects New Haven to mm-hmm. New York City, which is fantastic by rail. And, you know, and any from anywhere in New Haven, you can take an Uber to the train station, you know, within five, 10 minutes. And, mm-hmm. and so like, that's pretty outstanding. You can also take the Amtrak to Boston, go straight into South, uh, South Station. So you really don't need a car in New Haven. If you have a bike, you're pretty good. You could get to Boston and New York and, and you can get to the airports there by public transportation relatively easily. There is a bus system in the city and then there's a Yale shuttle, which is outstanding actually, but you have to be a Yale uh, affiliate to use mm-hmm. a student or employee. But that's a really well, highly used system as well. But aside from that, I would not say it's the best public transport you've ever seen. Oh, within the city itself, you mean? Within the city, the Mm. bus system, yeah. To be fair, I think as someone who's visited the city a number of times, it's, as you said, it's eminently walkable. You could literally park your car right around the green. And if you have a couple meetings or a couple things to do, you could pretty much like walk everywhere it's not even that that big of a deal i think at least personally definitely yeah no a couple a mile in any direction will pretty much get you anywhere mm-hmm. uh, and then also let's think of ferries are there any or those are actually neighboring cities that have those right neighboring cities so there's a ferry from bridgeport to long island which is great you can avoid new york city if you're going to long island but not from new haven that i know mm-hmm. about that would be cool though maybe we should look into that <laughs> That'll be the the next part of Cambridge's future infrastructure development. That's right. Absolutely. (laughs) 
<laughs> so and then access to the outdoors. I know a lot of my friends that have kids, that's a huge, huge thing. Yeah. Uh, so talk to us about the parks, the beaches and other recreation spaces that New Haven has. So East Rock Park is a huge one. There's mm-hmm. there's hiking trails, walking trails, baseball fields all around it. East Rock itself is actually a pretty good hike. It's a few hundred feet up and there, there are running trails up the mountain and you can get your get as much of a trail run as you want on them. Mm-hmm. Walk your dog, take your kids. It's it's really a great park. The beaches are fantastic. There's beaches um, in all the neighboring towns and, and you know, including mm-hmm. New Haven itself. So, you know, you've got a half dozen great beaches, both north and south of New Haven, mm-hmm. immediately north and south. And then, you know, a little further away, you've got quick access into the, re- into the rest of New England. So, you know, you can drive into Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine relatively quickly. And I think particularly what uh, goes underappreciated is uh, the coastal communities that are north and north or east of New Haven. So, for example, Mystic and Niantic and Groton, all of them are beautiful on their own. They're just off of 95. Yeah. And there's a nice kind of like a, a local road that you can take from, from town to town. I actually did that this past fall for the first time. Even though I've been to, I've done the New York Boston thing a gazillion yeah. times, yeah. never did I take that loop that way back to New Haven versus on 95. Or, or, yeah. Uh, it's lovely. It's great. That's great. I don't think I've ever driven that road. I've been in Niantic and New London and all those towns, but mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever taken that road. I, I always take 95 to get there. So that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So I think with all of this, these great details that you've given about New Haven, I don't know why anyone would not want to, to move to the city. So Yeah. yeah. Uh, circling back on a question you asked a little bit ago about what, what portion of people coming into New Haven are staying here and why. Mm-hmm. I think a significant portion of the people that have come to New Haven will stay here, or mm-hmm. choose to stay here. The work from home aspect, obviously, has kind of released that flexibility into the workforce that's affected the entire country and urban mm-hmm. centers across the country. Certainly, it's it, that's an aspect here. And then, you know, you're in a little city without being in New York. So I think you have a lot of the claustrophobia, pandemic-related claustrophobia and traffic issues relieved by coming to New Haven from New York. But you don't give up all of the walkability and, and other amenities that you would want from a city. So you kind of you get a little uh, little of both when you come to New Haven. You get the, the relief of the congestion, but you mm-hmm. still have all of those nice amenities. I think it's they're all wins. And I think particularly uh, drawing people away from perhaps the urban areas they're familiar with to go to others. Uh, other parts of the country is, I think, a, a very big big benefit overall this past year, having spent time in 12 different places across the country, one each month. Uh, I can tell you there's many amazing places to live beyond Brooklyn. Uh, so for example, Morgantown, West Virginia, I absolutely love. Uh, Durham, North Carolina, Charlottesville, Virginia, Austin, Texas. There's so many, so many great places. And New Haven is absolutely in my top 10 favorite cities in America. That's awesome. Well, that's an impressive list to put it up with. So that's great. <laughs> So we've had a chance to talk to the honorary mayor of uh, New Haven, Nick Falker. Yeah, right. Thank you so much for, yeah. for joining us today on the podcast. Sure. Thanks, Atif. It's nice to be here. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. 
We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests like Nick on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Nick and I have made donations to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which invests in research to help all blood cancer patients live better and longer lives. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.